Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome back for number five, the last, and uh, well done, those of you who've made all five. It's been lovely to see you all uh, kind of consistent attendance. Thank you. Last week, we were looking at Revelation chapters 12, 13, and 17, and we discovered there the identities of four enemies of God and enemies of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And these four, just to remind you, were Satan himself, also known as the Accuser and the Red Dragon, and his three minions or underlings, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and Babylon the whore or prostitute. Babylon standing for the corrupting influence of the world and its systems. Well, now, in chapters 18, 19, and 20, these four are finally and totally judged and destroyed. Babylon first, then the two beasts, and lastly, Satan. And at the same time, Jesus Christ is once again gloriously paraded as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then at the end of chapter 20, all humankind stand before the great throne for judgment. Finally, death and Hades join Satan and his three allies in what John describes as the lake of fire. So at last, all the necessary clearance work, if you like, has been done. The stage is set now for what John calls the old or first heaven to pass away and be superseded. It couldn't be done before because there were still enemies around and fighting. They've all now gone. So the old heaven and the old earth can pass away to be superseded by a new heaven and a new earth where every trace of evil and conflict has been obliterated. God's perfect plan, finally a reality. Welcome to chapters 21 and 22. And we're going to read on page 25 of your workbook, we're going to read chapter 21 verses 1 to 8 and verse 27. And Janet Johnson is going to read that not with you but to you, so a slight change. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, 
I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But nothing unclean will enter it, for anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet. So, as we look at the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible, we're not surprised to be presented with the climax or finale of the whole of Scripture. Everything in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, has been leading up to what we see here. Namely, the total triumph of God and of his son, Jesus, the slain lamb, and the fulfillment of their plan to establish a renewed universe. Yes, it's as big as that, a renewed universe. The perfect holy city where evil and every form of darkness are comprehensively banished forever. Call it heaven if you like, but as we shall see, this heaven is far, far more than the peaceful resting place, RIP, that you and I tend to think of. It is a marvellous prospect, but there is a sting in the tail. Because before you and I can relish the good news, we do have to face up to some bad news. And the bad, or perhaps better sobering news, is this. Not every human being that has walked on planet Earth will be able to share in this new order. No, there are going to be exclusions there will be a final and irrevocable separation at the end of time. Not everybody will attend what is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, in chapters 20, 20 to 22, several expressions are used to describe the excluded. And one of them is in chapter 21 and verse 8, which we've just heard. It presents a list. Do you see that there? The cowardly the unbelieving, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Now, I guess that some of those categories don't surprise us. For instance, murderers and the sexually immoral, for instance. That fits with our natural sense of justice. 
especially when we remember that this must refer, I think, to habitual murderers and habitually immoral people rather than someone who may have committed a single murder in a fit of rage and then regretted it bitterly. This list is about people who've been committed to and locked into a particular evil lifestyle. But what about the inclusion of the unbelieving in this list of the excluded? Is the Bible really saying that unbelief is a culpable attitude, a sin? Surely not. Aren't there many good people, in inverted commas, good to all appearances at least, who are profoundly unbelieving? Well, this may be very non-PC and difficult for us to accept in this age of tolerance, so-called, but actually, yes, the view taken throughout the Bible is that unbelief can be blameworthy. And Jesus explained why. He said this in John chapter 3. He said, light has come into the world, in other words, the Christian faith or conscience, but people loved darkness rather than light and will not come into the light. That's Jesus' diagnosis. So behind a lot of unbelief, Jesus is saying, lies a veil of darkness. And it's not hard to be specific, really. First of all, the darkness of intellectual pride and arrogance that prevents faith. Richard Dawkins, for example. But then there's the darkness of self-righteousness, that says, well, I'm good enough by myself, thank you very much. And also, what about the darkness that perpetuates a kind of victimhood, very common this century? Quotes, look what I've suffered, so to hell with God. Further on in chapter 21, there is another reference to exclusion. That's verse 27, which I printed for you at the bottom of that reading. Nothing unclean will enter the holy city, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood. Nothing unclean or impure? Well, that rules us all out, doesn't it? Which of us here could possibly claim to be totally pure in actions, words, and thoughts? No, you and I cannot hope to enter the holy city unless our impurities, our sins, have been dealt with and forgiven through Christ. And hence, what it says in chapter 22, verse 14 onwards. Let's read that together, shall we? It's the bottom of page 25 there, just a short paragraph. So, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So blessed are those who wash their robes, the necessary essential washing, cleansing through the shed blood of the Lamb. But did you notice again in chapter 22 then, at the, verse 15, we have another list 
of those to be excluded, a list which echoes that first list. Outside are the dogs. Relax, that doesn't mean there won't be any pets in heaven. Dogs here means pariah dogs, marauding, rabies-filled predators of every kind. In practice, perhaps, loan sharks, pimps, rapacious bankers, unscrupulous landlords, drug barons, human traffickers, bandits, and pirates. But also excluded the sorcerers and fornicators, murderers and idolaters. And we need to pause for a moment on that word idolater. Because idolatry in the Bible is never restricted to just the literal worship of totem poles or statues. Though obviously it does include pagan rituals which dishonor, grieve and anger God. No, idolatry also encompasses all forms of greed or covetousness. Where a person's God, in inverted commas, or idol, is not the living God, but the God of money, or possessions, or property, or reputation, or image, or pleasure, or achievement. Indulged in, or worshipped, pursued to the point of gross excess, idolatry. And then finally, did you notice, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And this echoes the all liars of the early list, the earlier list. And I don't know about you, but I think it's highly significant that in both lists, the final evil specified, and therefore perhaps the one that summarizes all the rest, is what we might generally call deceit. You may have gathered that I read quite a lot of history, and the longer I live and the more I read, the more I'm driven to the conclusion that lies, falsehood, and deceit are the world's number one fundamental cardinal evil, and always have been. I mean, just think of the comprehensiveness of them, taking in exaggeration, where well, we all do that to bolster our own case, Half-truth, the opposite. Historical redaction, that's a technical phrase for the rewriting of history. It's been done and is being done by governments all the time. Distortion, misinformation, disinformation, willful editorial bias. There is hardly a newspaper or magazine not guilty of that. Character assassination, propaganda, fake news, spin, tax dodging, fair dodging, expenses falsified, cheating in sport, internet scams, the list is endless. It was quite an interesting thing the other day in the New York Times. According to the New York Times, President Trump lied or dissembled at least once every day for the first 40 days of his presidency. And the Washington Post went better than that and counted 623 false or misleading statements that Trump had made even in his first 137 days. But of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post could just be themselves the purveyors of half-truths, couldn't they? 
These things, lies, are endemic, I suggest, and they corrupt every human institution and in the process ruin the lives of millions. No wonder God's righteous anger and justice will have to focus on all persistent offenders. So exclusions, quite a lot of them. But what happens to the excluded? Well, just now in one passage, we read of them being outside, outside the city, simply that. And that doesn't sound too terrible. But we do have to face the fact that in these final chapters, Revelation says a bit more about that outside. Yes, it talks about a place, or better, I think, a state of consciousness, that is described four times as the lake of fire or the second death. In other words, dear friends, the place that we have traditionally called hell. And that will be the destination, according to scripture, not only of the dragon devil, the beast, and the false prophet whom we met earlier on, but also, tragically, the destination of those excluded from the holy city. I mean, let's just think about this for a moment, although it's not a particularly palatable subject. Hell. Of course, in many, they use the word every day as an expletive, and quite a lot of us joke about it, and perhaps both those stratagems are stratagems for ducking the reality. Now, obviously, the whole idea of fire and flames is fraught with difficulties for us in the 21st century, and we know that medieval artists and sculptors really went to town on this. I hope you'll forgive this little bit of humor, well, sort of humor. An American church outside had an outside notice board, and it combined both joke and problem when, having suffered a break-in and burglary, it posted this notice, quotes, Whoever stole our two air conditioning units, please keep one because you'll need it where you are going. <laughs> Can we just say that I think personally the idea of flames is perhaps meant to convey the idea of burning shame or remorse, but also of the idea of perishing. Flames consume to a point of perishing, don't they? And perishing is the word used in John 3.16, the great gospel verse, for the alternative to eternal life. I personally have found this definition of hell constructive, and by the way, there will be a chance to write this into your books if you want to. The four letters H-E-L-L can spell out his, that is God's, eternal love lost. I don't know if that's helpful, it might be. Hell, H-E-L-L, his, or heavens, if you prefer it, eternal love lost. And as part of that, as I've just said, the burning fire of shame and regret. So, in 2019, can we believe this? Do we believe it? Well, let's just think of it this way for a moment. Suppose there is no such state of consciousness or judgment. Suppose that everyone, regardless of their life on earth, is automatically scooped up into the all-embracing arms of God, which is what a lot of people believe, probably against their will, incidentally, or natural inclinations, these people. That means that walking the streets of the holy city will be Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Jimmy Savile, and you say, but that's outrageous. Yes, it is. 
So in those cases, the concept of a place of final judgment does fit in with our view of natural justice. More than that, if there is no hell, then frankly, the whole idea of God giving us free will to make our own choices and to live by them, that whole notion is a mockery. If everybody is yanked up into the holy city in the end, regardless, then we've not been free at all, really. G.K. Chesterton, the early 20th century Christian apologist, once wrote this, and again, this is in your book, so don't feel you've got to take it down now. Quotes, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. And the Church of England, yes, even the good old C of E, said pretty well the same thing in its 1995 Doctrine Commission on this subject. And again, this quotation is printed for you. Quotes, no one can be compulsorily installed in heaven. God, whose being is love, preserves our human freedom, i.e. to choose properly, for freedom is the condition of love. Now, that doesn't solve everything, obviously, but it might just help you as we wrestle with this concept. So, a very difficult part of the book of Revelation, but it's nothing new or strange as far as the Bible is concerned. We do need to remember this. Jesus, in his teaching, taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And he described it in terms of eternal loss, judgment, and punishment. He used expressions like the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25. By the way, notice that. The eternal fire was never intended for human beings, never. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it is a tragedy over which God weeps, I think, when human beings have to go there. Jesus talked about hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. And he spoke of people who will perish. I've already referred to that, John 3.16. And what about his most well-known phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of utter frustration and regret. But you know, I'm sure that Jesus wept or had a tear in his eye when he said these things. Unfortunately, we can't hear his tone of voice from the text of our Bibles. Because anyone going to hell, as I've just suggested, is an unmitigated tragedy and a reason for weeping. So, no conflict between the Jesus of the Gospels and St. John of the book of Revelation. Do hang on to that. Which brings us, before we turn to the good news, to the end of chapter 22 and the one last exclusion specified, and it's a very poignant one. Look at verse 19, the verse at the bottom of page 25 there. If anyone takes words away from the book of prophecy, this book of prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the holy city. My goodness. Woe betide anyone who tries to tamper with or dilute this document, and there have been many. That statement makes for this book of Revelation a claim, doesn't it, to a very high authority. Nothing less than the authority of God himself. And that presents you and me with a challenge. Because I guess that there's a lot that we've seen over these four weeks and today which we don't like. 
and which perhaps we recoil from. One or two people I know have said to me, oh, I couldn't possibly come to this course. I just loathe the book of Revelation. They couldn't come. They've said it to me about sermon series on the, on the same book. Yes, I think we understand why. Much of this is terribly non-PC, isn't it, these days, with its talk of God's wrath and judgments. Material that we'd love to take a pair of scissors to and cut out, leaving only the good news, the nice bits. Well, it's up to each one of us. We have a choice. Okay. You're taking off your coat. You all right? Okay. Okay. You okay? Just help him, somebody. Thanks. Good. We have a choice, don't we? We can say that with our modern, liberal, tolerant views, our so-called enlightenment, we can say that we know better than the Bible. We can say that we've moved on from such primitive beliefs as hell while still inconsistently believing the bits about heaven. So we can be choosy and selective, although the text itself, as we've seen, strongly warns us against that. Or we can say, this is the word of God, all of it. It's what in his love for us he wants us to know the warnings as well as the blessings. And therefore, despite the difficulties, we will wrestle with these things and submit to its authority. We'll wrestle with the problems and trust God for the difficulties that we can't immediately solve. Let's just be quiet for a moment before we just do a little bit of filling in our workbooks by way of revision. But let's just be quiet for a minute. And in the quietness, will you tell God honestly what you think about all this? He can take it. And then if you can, say to him, Lord, I want to trust you and believe it. Help me as I agonize and wrestle in my mind with it. Heavenly Father, please show us where our age, our times, slip away from your truth, as every age does in one aspect or another. Please show us, Lord, where a particular current emphasis or fad tries to pull us away from eternal truth. Make us discerning. Help us to understand the times we live in. And grant us that grace and wisdom to see your truth, to submit to it, and to love you more and to serve you better in that truth light. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn to page 26, shall we, just to fill in a few things. I'm not going to fill in all of this, but it may be useful to have some of it just remind us for us. First of all, the two lists of exclusions, 21.8 and 22.15, both conclude with liars and those who practice falsehood. Liars and those who practice falsehood. The first list includes the unbelieving, and this echoes Jesus' teaching in John 3:18 to 19, where he says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned. Friends, that obviously raises enormous problems about those who've never heard of Jesus, and you may like to ask that in the question time. No easy answers to that, but we might be able to shed a little light on it. Next, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. I vividly remember a Christian house party that Miriam and I went on uh, many years ago. We took over a preparatory school in Somerset, which had been empty for a few weeks during the school holidays, and we went into the kitchen and we switched on the light. You can guess what happened. A multitude of cockroaches went like that. You see, they're like human beings. They prefer the darkness to the light, whereas butterflies and moths are attracted to the light. And the gospel is like that. It attracts those who are being drawn to the truth. Sadly, it repels and those who are not going to respond. Instead of light, back to our workbook, because their deeds were evil. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Both lists include idolaters. Idolatry in the Bible is never restricted to the worship of statues or totem poles. St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5, no immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So no immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. So idolatry is basically greed in any form. I don't know about you, but I find that hugely challenging. The lake that burns with fire, or second death, 21.8, and also 20.10 and 14.15, these are Revelation's words to describe what elsewhere in the Bible is simply called hell. Now, I want us just to understand what Jesus says because it's so important that we don't try and cast a wedge between Revelation and the Gospels, as many try to do. So just briefly filling in some of Jesus' remarks, Matthew 7, 13 to 14 
Jesus used the word destruction. Two paths, one leads to life, he said, and the other to destruction, perishing, if you wish. Matthew 24, 51, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Twenty-five forty-one, eternal fire. Let me just break in there and explain what the word eternal means in Scripture. It doesn't mean so much going on and on and on and on. It's not so much about quantity as quality. So eternal is the 100% of. And that may just help you when you find it difficult to grasp the idea of, you know, does life go on and on and on and on? No, it's not about quantity, it's about quality, okay? Matthew 25, 46, the same word, eternal punishment. In contrast to eternal life. I'll leave you to do Mark 9.48 yourself because it's quite a long one. You can do that tonight, maybe. John 3.16, perish. The great gospel verse, but it talks about perishing as an alternative to eternal life, doesn't it? Okay, here's what we did earlier. A possible definition of hell, heaven's or his eternal love lost. Heaven or his eternal love lost. And then the two quotations, and this will lead us into our refreshments. From G.K. Chesterton, hell is God's greatest compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. And then the Church of England Doctrine Commission of 1996. No one can be compulsorily installed in heaven. God whose being is love preserves our human freedom, for freedom is the condition of love. And finally, if we gladly accept the good bits of, in Revelation about heaven, what right have we to be selective and reject the, quotes bad bits about hell? Well, in the second half, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of good news. Go and have a drink. We'll call you back in about 20 minutes or later for our final session. We're going to uh, have read to us the three short passages that you'll find on the top of page 27 in our workbooks. And Carolyn Davy is going to read this, not with you, but to you. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Isaiah 65:17. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carolyn. So in our final session, we come to the good news, the very good news. As St. John's vision climaxes with a breathtaking picture of what God has in store, of what we might loosely call heaven. Of course, there is a sense in which God's heaven is so heavenly that no earthly description, no human words, can possibly do it justice. Uh, you may know the story of the child who had spent his entire existence living in the inner city. And one day, this child made his first journey ever into the countryside. And he saw a bird perched on the branch of a tree and then flying about freely. Seeing this, the child said, Poor little bird, he hasn't even got a cage to live in. So you see, that child's understanding was completely governed and limited by the only existence that he knew, the inner city. And it's the same with us, isn't it? Earthlings as we are, visualizing heaven or anything different is a challenge. But we can try, based on the pictures granted to John. And John's pictures can be summarized in just one word, really. It's all about life. Life with a capital L. So those in heaven, firstly, have their names inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. A heavenly register, so to speak, of those truly alive in the deepest sense. A register where the name of every follower of Jesus is recorded because Jesus came to offer eternal life, salvation. So your name, I trust, is in that book and mine too. Secondly, every follower of Jesus will have continuous access to the tree of life, a tree with fruit and healing in its leaves. And thirdly, all those in God's kingdom will be able to drink freely from the water of life. That comes at least two or three times in these final chapters. Water to slake spiritual thirst. So book, tree, water, life, life, life with a capital L. And all that is reinforced by another overarching theme, the theme of newness. So John hears God himself saying from his throne, I'm making all things new. Conversely, the first things, or the old order, have passed away. So yes, there's going to be a new universe, a new heaven and a new earth, to which the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will descend.
But actually, all this talk of newness is not actually new as far as the Bible is concerned. Many centuries before John, the prophet Isaiah was told by God, I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. Yes, it's there right back in the 8th century BC. And Jesus himself once spoke to his disciples about what he called the renewal of all things, of all things, not just all people, at the end of time, literally the new birth. That's Matthew 19, 28. So, as out of this world John's revelation may appear, it does have strong continuity with the rest of the Bible's revelation, as you'd expect, because the Bible is one book. So life, newness, if you like, eternal life. And in John's vision, this eternal life is illustrated by three metaphors. Number one, the city. Number two, the garden. That's where the tree and the water come in. And number three, the wedding or the wedding of the lamb. So we've got newness. We've got newness in the city, in the garden, and the wedding. And all those three have one thing in common. They represent close personal fellowship with God, fellowship with him in his city, in his garden, and at his son's wedding. Now, this fellowship, of course, is something which you and I can experience now and should as we turn to Christ, but it will be developed and totally consummated at the end of time. And that consummated fellowship with our maker is expressed with great daring in chapter 22, verse 4. They, that is God's servants, will see his face. They will see God's face. And you know, any Jew hearing that would have gasped. What? Because in the Old Testament, it had been made crystal clear that no sinful, flawed, mortal human being could possibly see God's face and live. The sheer holiness, purity, and awesome brightness would be fatally overwhelming. Like you and me looking straight into the midday sun. Impossible. But that impossibility belongs to the old order. Now, with all things made new through the work of Christ, we redeemed sinners will be able to look our maker straight in the eye. And as we do so, even more incredibly, God himself will be so close and so personal that he himself will wipe away every tear from our eye. Did the astonishment of that phrase come over to you as we read it? God himself will wield the Kleenex tissues, removing all vestiges of the old order, pain and tears. It's extraordinary. We shall see his face then in the city, in the garden, and at the wedding. And what we want to do now, what I want to do now, is to take those three metaphors one by one and try and unwrap them. First, the city, the New Jerusalem, and chapter 21, verses 9 to 27, give us a description. We're going to read that together. It's the bottom of page 27. I've left out six verses, partly because of time. They deal with the measurements of the city, and I will refer briefly to those. That's why there's a gap there. But let's read 21, 9 to 15, and 21 to 27. 
Then, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. You sure? This is the word of the Lord. That's better. Yeah. Okay, so the city has 12 gates inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It also has 12 foundations, a bit difficult to visualize that, but we can try, which are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. And we've met these two 12s before, haven't we, in session two, chapters four and five, in the person of the 24 elders around the throne. Now, John is shown the city's measurements. We didn't read those, but let me tell you that it's a cube as was the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Old Testament temple. So there is a continuity, again, back into the Old Testament. Now, the measurements as given are architecturally preposterous. It would be a city measuring 1,500 miles, length, breadth, and height. That is the distance from London to Athens. So clearly, this is not literal, is it? It's symbolic, and the symbolism, I suggest, is clear. The holy city is a beautiful but massive impregnable fortress, representing the completed church of both Old and New Testaments, hence the 12, the apostles and 
the tribes. And because it's that, it offers total security and peace to the people of God. A security and peace denied on earth to so many of John's persecuted readers and denied to millions of struggling Christians ever since. Now, there are one or two lovely little details that highlight this security and peace. Take verse 25, for instance, of chapter 21. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Why not? Night, the traditional time for robbery and violence and skullduggery. Features of the old order, necessitating the shutting of all gates. But not anymore. And isn't it wonderful to think that heaven will be completely free from locks, keys, padlocks, alarms, and CCTV. And you won't even need to remember your computer password either. Now, nighttime is not the only absentee in the city. Chapter 21 and verse 22 tells us that there is no temple in the city, no special religious building or church. Now, that's interesting because back in chapter 15, verse 5, we didn't, weren't able to look at this, but back in chapter 15, verse 5, when, if you like, God's plan is evolving towards its climax but hasn't got there yet, there is a temple in heaven, but it's not in its final state. And even Satan still seems to be around. This is part of the old order. But as I said at the beginning, that's all been dealt with and swept away. Now, no temple, no special building or church. Why not? Because, says John, its temple is the Lord God and the Lamb. Amazing phrase. In other words, their presence so permeates the city's bricks and mortar, so to speak, that there is no need to provide sacred space. It's all sacred. Merely to be in the city is to be able to see God face to face. So if I may stick my neck out a little and just say that if some of us here are a bit too wedded to our church building or a certain part of our church building, perhaps we need to think carefully because in heaven we will not have any such church building. Now, if the city has some interesting omissions, it also has some intriguing inclusions. Chapter 21 and verses 24 and 26, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. People will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. I love this because it so affirms all that's noble and pure about the world's cultural treasures. Stripped of all impurity, the very best of music, art, sculpture, ceramics, tapestry, joinery, metalwork, etc., etc., will be there. Hey, my friends, if you enjoy going round the London's Victoria and Albert Museum, you'll enjoy heaven. The holy city, indescribably beautiful. And John says, note this, that he saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. The so-called descent of the new Jerusalem. Now, why is this so significant? 
Answer, because it tells us that the new reality or heaven or kingdom of God is not, repeat, not some ethereal existence up there somewhere. No, it's very much down to earth, down here. Hence, John's hearing the loud, triumphant assertion from the throne, now the home of God is amongst mortals, and he will dwell with them. God himself will be with them. Yes, with them, in or on, the new earth, which has never before, will be one with the new heaven. Tom Wright former Bishop of Durham, puts this really well in his book, Following Jesus. And I'd like you to look at the quotation, which I've written in full for you on page 28. He says this. Heaven is God's space, which intersects with our space, but transcends it. It is, if you like, a further dimension of our world, not a place far removed at one extreme of our world. The final Christian hope is that the two dimensions, heaven and earth, at present separated by a veil of invisibility caused by human rebellion, will be united together. So that that will be new heavens and a new earth. Heaven is the extra dimension, the God dimension of all our present reality. I don't know if that's new to you, but when I first read that, it was as if a light was switched on. I found that massively helpful. But I think it raises a question which many Christians secretly ponder, but often dare not articulate, namely, what are we all going to do in heaven? And especially if it goes on forever. I mean, you know, the popular conception is that we sit through an endless harp concerto or choir practice wearing nothing but a Laura Ashley nightdress. But John hints at much, much more. Let's read together what's on the top of page 28 from Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. But as last week, before we read this together, I want you to alter the text in one place, please, and make the same alteration as we did last week. In verse 3, you'll see the phrase, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Would you please cross out the word worship and put the word serve? Yes, they're similar, but not identical. And I think most commentators think that the Greek means serve, not just worship. Okay. So let's read that together with the change, okay? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, 
for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. It gets better and better, doesn't it? So, in chapter 22 here, verses 3 to 5, John is passing on what he has received about those he terms God's servants. And he says this about them, they will serve God and the Lamb, and they will reign forever and ever. Two very powerful verbs, serve and reign. And to me, that suggests some kind of action or ministry. Perhaps on behalf of God, managing the new universe with its healed nations. Something akin to God's original intentions for Adam and Eve, because if you remember, he put them in the garden to tend it, to look after it. Maybe this is the new order's equivalent. You know, we sometimes talk about the afterlife, don't we? It's a terrible phrase, as if our existence beyond death is only a kind of afterthought. Nothing could be further from the Christian revelation. Mike Cain, in his excellent commentary on St. John's Gospel, writes like this, and again, I've put the whole text for you. Let me read it. You've got it there in the middle of page 28. He says, The world to come will not be a ghostly imitation of this present world. It will be this flesh and blood world restored to all the glory for which it was originally intended. In other words, it will be more real, not less real. Our joys will be more solid, our pleasure more substantial, and it will not be boring. Okay, very hard to visualise, I know, but I think the truth that Mike is making is a very helpful one. So, one, security in the city of God, metaphor number one. Metaphor number two restored access to the tree of life in the garden. This new city, already graphically described in terms of walls, gates, and foundations, is to be a garden city. Isn't that interesting? A garden city. I came across this piece in the Times newspaper a month ago. I quote, Economists who study joy have said that seven things reliably bring happiness. Family, friends, work, wealth, health, freedom, and personal values. And then this astonishing statement. Now scientists have evidence of an eighth, beautiful surroundings. Oh, scientists, well done. Did you not know that the Bible said that 2,500 years ago? And even in the last century, at the end of the war, our planners in this country re realized that urban concrete jungles had to be relieved with open green spaces to preserve the human psyche. And so we had Lechworth Garden City in 1947 and Welling Garden City thereafter, and so on. Why are scientists so slow to catch up with what scripture says? You see, a garden city is intended to meet the two most basic complementary human needs. On the one hand, the need for communion with nature. There's the garden, the green. And on the other hand, the need to commune with one another, or the need for community. There's the city. And of course, the 20th century planners weren't coming up with anything basically new. The Babylonians had thought of it 25 centuries earlier, with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and the Persians likewise. 
one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But what planners have appeared to discover or rediscover was always in the mind of God from the very beginning. So his new Jerusalem, the holy city, has abundant water and greenery. Take the water first, 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Incidentally, that's straight from Ezekiel 47, another link with the Old Testament, but that needn't disown us now, needn't, needn't detain us. A stream issuing from God's throne where the Lamb is. So this must represent God's abundant supply of free grace and mercy constantly available. And where is this river? Not set apart somewhere. No, it's flowing right down the main street. I mean, think of it. London's Oxford Street, Paris's Champs-Élysées, not just pedestrianised, but riverised, so that the thirsty may drink to their heart's content. And on the riverbank, the tree of life, 22.2. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. Now, it's not clear whether there's just one tree or several lining both banks, but frankly, the detail hardly matters. The symbolism is clear. There is masses of good fruit just there for the taking. The hungry may eat to their heart's content. No more famine, no more poverty, no more malnutrition. The tree of life. Where have we met this tree before in the Bible? Oh yes, at the very beginning in the paradise of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 and 3. And you may remember that it was God's intention there that Adam and Eve should eat freely of that tree of life and so enjoy eternal life. But when they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of that other tree in the garden, the prohibited tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they rebelled in that way, God had to banish them from the garden and so deny them access to the tree of life. And the tree of life vanishes out of scripture, I think entirely right through to its reappearance here. Its non-existence, if you like, was all part of the old order of things that has passed away. But in the new order, because of the lamb's sacrifice for sin, the tree of life is once again available. But do notice, it's not just for the salvation of individuals like you and me. No, we read that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What a lovely phrase that is. And my goodness, how the nations of the world need God's healing, don't they? Well, it's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. So are you following me? We're talking about newness. We're talking about life. We've said metaphor one, security in the city of God. Metaphor two, restored access to the tree of life in the garden. And then metaphor number three, intimacy and love in the relationship of bride and bridegroom. Intimacy and love in the relationship of bride and bridegroom. In chapter 21... John has compared the descending holy city to a bride, a bride prepared and beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And in 21.9, this holy city bride is called the wife of the lamb. So at this wedding, Jesus is the husband, the groom, and the church, Old Testament and new, is the bride. So who is married to Jesus? We are. You are. I am. Every single true member of Christ's church. Married to Jesus. A metaphor speaking of profound intimacy and love, what every human being is created for and longs for. Well, it's going to be met in full. John Rogers was the first Protestant martyr to be burnt at the stake in the reign of Queen Mary in 1553. The French ambassador watching the procession to the execution site commented, quotes, he looked so cheerful, as if he were going to his wedding. Well, he was, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, those of you who know your Old Testaments will realize that we find this bold marriage metaphor away back in the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, all of which unashamedly deploy the imagery of marriage and sexual union to depict the covenant between God and his people. That's why, incidentally, it's one of the purposes of every Christian marriage to make belief in God and Jesus easier. That as people see the quality of teamwork and unity and mutual forgiveness and love in an earthly marriage, they say, wow, there's something unearthly about that. What is it? It's something divine. And thus are drawn to the God who created marriage partly for that purpose. So, it was, of course, the marriage between God and Israel. Here, in its great fulfillment, it's the marriage between God's son, the Lamb, and that great multitude that no one could number. Now, when it comes to weddings, what do some people, particularly the women folk, want to know all about? Answer, the bride's dress. What was she wearing? And the book of Revelation doesn't disappoint us. Here's a quotation from chapter 19. The Lamb's bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. Very interesting, fine linen. But just look at the breathtaking explanation that follows. Fine linen, I quote, is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, who are the saints? Remember week two? We are, all of us. It's the word for every Christian, isn't it? It means set apart. Fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's us. So every good deed that you and I do in the name of Christ is another centimeter or two of fine linen making up that future wedding dress. Doesn't that sanctify or give purpose and meaning to our everyday life? The little things and the bigger things, the kindnesses to others that people do see, and the unseen good deeds that no one but God sees, they are fine linen. And as such, they are all counting towards the wedding day. Now, maybe that slightly domestic note is the right one to end on, lest the lofty grandeur and otherworldliness of so much of Revelation 
puts our head too much in the clouds. As we conclude, we need perhaps to try and summarize the continuing relevance of Revelation. And I have put that for you, uh, the whole text, at the bottom of page 28 and 29. Forgive me if this seems a little bit pedantic reading it, but I wanted you to have this in writing so that perhaps it sticks. In conclusion, the continuing relevance of Revelation. Just as Revelation in the first century helped its Christian readers put Rome's imperial power into true perspective, God's perspective, so Revelation will help Christians anywhere today to put the gods of the 21st century into proper perspective. It will do this by reminding them of six, I wish I could have made it seven, but I couldn't, important truths. You might find a seventh, do tell me if you do. One, God is on the throne. Remember the only throne that matters. Two, Christ's vindication and victory are assured, said over and over again in the book after each repeated cycle. Thirdly, his faithful followers are eternally safe. Fourthly, the persecutors of Christians and all evildoers will be held to account and appropriately punished. Fifthly, the devil and his allies are doomed to destruction. Sixthly, this present pain-racked world will give way to a recreated, God-filled, suffering-free new order. How relevant is all that in 2019? All this, surely, should give Christians hope and the will to persevere, as well as the profoundly affecting their lifestyle, choices, values, and behavior. So we move to our conclusion. It was demanded of first century Christians that they declare Caesar is Lord and by default accept Rome's corrupt values. Revelation offers a vivid and dramatic alternative by declaring that Jesus is Lord. So 20 centuries later, this raises the following important questions. One, what are the equivalent demands made on Christians today by our secular 21st society? In what sense, thinking of last week, are we being required actually to worship the beast from the sea? Are we being compelled to accept certain values that we just don't agree with or that are not in line with God's will as we think? These are sort of questions that have come up, aren't they? Secondly, who or what today is usurping God's rightful place? Is it the state or is it something slightly more subtle than that, which is nonetheless usurping the place of God? Thirdly, in what ways am I, are we, this applies to church communities as much as individuals, being tempted to align ourselves with the dragon and his allies? What will it mean for me, us, to remain faithful to Christ the Lamb, whatever the cost, and in that way to overcome or conquer? This is why this book is so relevant and up-to-date. This is why it's a book for our troubled times.
let's just have a moment of quiet thinking about those three things, or, and then we'll just fill in briefly the final bits of our workbook. But a moment of silence, I think, in which to reflect on those three questions there. And you might like to turn back to page 28 and just reflect on which of those six important truths is the one that means most to you tonight and why. Which one are you clinging on to on April the 10th, 2019? Okay, let's just fill in briefly page 29 and then there'll be time for questions as we close. Okay, heaven is all about life in a threefold way. Do you remember? So the Lamb's book of life, that register of God's people. Secondly, the tree of life. How many fruit crops per year? Did we say that? It told us 12, 12 fruit crops per year. There'll be GM crops there, not genetically modified, but God modified. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Gosh, thank you, Lord. Yemen, Syria. Mozambique, Haiti. Thirdly, the water of life. So the Lamb's book of life, the tree of life, and the water of life. Okay, heaven is all about newness. The first things have passed away, or the old order, if you prefer. The first things have passed away. God says, I'm making all things new. All. Eternal life is illustrated by three metaphors, all of which represent close personal fellowship with God. They will see God's face. And God will be so close that he himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. Wipe every tear from their eyes.
first metaphor, a place of total safety. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. Shut and night. A place where God's presence is so all-encompassing that everywhere is sacred. I saw no temple in the city. Temple, yes, or church if you prefer. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Page 30. A place of extraordinary beauty, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. A place of activity appropriate to a city, God's servants will serve him. Sounds obvious, but it's needs to be said, God's servants will serve him. Second metaphor, restored access to the tree of life in the garden. As punishment for humankind's rebellion against him, God had said that man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life. Take from the tree of life. That curse or prohibition is now lifted. And the third metaphor, intimacy and love in the wedding relationship of bride and groom. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The bride, the wife of the lamb. And the lamb's bride's wedding dress is made of fine linen which stands for the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. Remember, that's you. And me. Okay, if you didn't quite get all that, well, do ask me afterwards. I'd like us to say this lovely prayer by John Donne together. Then we'll have questions, and I think probably I shall pray at the end as well. But this is such a fabulous prayer, and it really beautifully summarizes what we've been trying to say. So shall we say it together quite, quite slowly? Bring us, O Lord, to our last awakening into that house and gate of heaven. To enter into that gate and dwell in that house where shall be no darkness or dazzling but one equal light, no noise nor silence but one equal music, no fears nor hopes but one equal possession, no ends nor beginnings but one equal eternity in the habitations of your glory and dominion, world without end.
Isn't that fabulous? He was a great Christian literary poet, John Donne. Okay, time for questions. Roving Mike and